warning. This podcast frequently contains potentially triggering, violent, and graphic content. Listener discretion is highly advised. Hello again, Nightmare Society. Gather around for another episode of True Horror Stories. I've got some particularly creepy stories for you tonight as usual, and it's yet another beautiful, rainy, dark day outside. So enjoy the precipitation. A big welcome to our newest members of the online campfire, Sierra F. and Brittany H. Thanks so much for pitching in to keep the episodes going. We really, really appreciate the help. At patreon.com slash nightmare society, you can join for as little as a dollar a month. We have different levels of membership and different perks for each, so if you're interested, be sure to head over and check it out. I'd also like to say a big happy birthday to Venus, who actually joined us on Patreon recently. Happy birthday, Venus, from your boyfriend, Adil, as well as the whole Nightmare Society. Make sure to make it a good one. Also, a huge thanks to our contributors, user Christaboo14 and user Midnight Snacks, who were nice enough to share their stories with us tonight. Now, get comfy and prepare yourself for another episode of The Nightmare Society. When I was 14 years old, I was asked to babysit my three younger cousins, age 8, 4, and 1 in an extremely rural and mountainous part of Pennsylvania. My aunt and uncle had a wedding to go to over an hour away and wouldn't be back until very late. Their house was situated on a steep mountainside. Their back deck had a 15-foot drop onto a rocky hill below, leading down to a river. Their closest neighbors were about a half mile away. The closest main road was a mile away, and at night there were no lights to be seen anywhere around them. Basically, it was in the middle of nowhere, and you would have to know where you're going to get there. You don't just accidentally end up there. My aunt and uncle left us with some pizza and their cell phone number next to their landline. This was the early 2000s and I did not have a cell phone. But even if I did, I would not get reception there anyway. And then they headed out. The baby was already asleep. The four-year-old was not feeling well and was quietly watching TV in the living room as he dozed off. And the eight-year-old was playing Guitar Hero with me up on the loft. The loft overlooked the living room to the left, where I could keep an eye on the four-year-old and there was a huge window that overlooked the driveway to the right. This description of the driveway is an important detail to the story, 
The road that led to their house ran straight into their forked driveway. It was a dead end road. The house was as far as you could go. Go to the left driveway and there is a large carport and that's where my aunt and uncle and anyone who ever visited parked. The right driveway led down a very short but very steep hill to a large leveled out area and ended against the garage door that opened to the basement of the house. It was never used as a garage, but served as my uncle's man cave, and it's where he spent most of his time. Right beside the garage door, there was a normal door with a window, so you could see right inside. But this driveway was exclusively used by the kids as a play area, because it was the only flat, yard-like area on the property. And being on a mountainside, there was not much room to safely play otherwise. No cars ever drove down there. Ever. There are too many toys and bikes in the way, and friends and family knew this. It was about 10 p.m., pitch black outside. No moon to illuminate the area either. My cousin and I were still playing Guitar Hero when headlights caught the corner of my eye. And not my aunt's minivan headlights. Huge truck headlights with those roof lights you often see on Jeeps or other off-road trucks. Not only that, the truck was going down the right driveway, the kids' play area. This was not my aunt and uncle, and this was not anyone they knew. Panic and dread filled my body. I was a small teenage girl, alone in an isolated house, on a mountain at night, with three children in my care. In a terrified voice, I asked my cousin, Who is that? Jake, do you know whose truck that is? And then he looked panicked. He said he had never seen that truck before. I quickly ushered him downstairs, still unsure what to do. But the two little ones were sleeping down there and I wanted to make sure they were safe. I checked on the baby and then grabbed the phone to call 911. And then I started to hear the metal garage door being shaken violently. No one ever opened that garage door. More panic fills me. I hear them try the door beside it. The metal doorknob jiggling. No one was actually knocking. It's not like they were checking to see if my uncle was down there. Plus the lights were out. It was dark down there. They knew no one was down there. They were definitely breaking in. The door leading to the basement steps was right next to the phone, so I could clearly hear all that was going on. I quickly turned the little lock on the doorknob just in case they did make it into the basement. My heart was practically jumping out of my chest. 
I'm talking to the 911 dispatcher as my eight-year-old cousin clings to my arm. The operator is calm and trying to calm me, but I knew it would be at least 30 minutes until a police officer could get up there, assuming they did not get totally lost on the mountainside in the pitch dark. I just kept thinking, we are screwed, we're dead, this is how I die. The operator asked for the number my aunt and uncle left me so she could have another dispatcher call them to let them know the situation. I turned around to grab the paper with the number on it, and to my absolute horror, I see a man peering in the large sliding glass door. A huge, burly, what had to be a six foot four inch man with long scraggly red hair and a big red bushy beard. And what made it worse, he was grinning at me. Grinning in a way that still scares me to this day. Meanwhile, I had to have looked like a terrified deer in the headlights. I was shaking so hard I could barely hold the phone. There was a second man behind him I could not see as well. I have no idea what he looked like but he was equally as tall but a bit more lanky than the larger man at the door. I screamed, and before the 911 operator can say anything, my eight-year-old cousin goes, Mr. Jim? His voice was very confused. It wasn't like my cousin was happy or even relieved to see him. I asked him if he knew who that was. But before he could answer, I turn my attention to the man at the door, and I scream that I'm on the phone with the police. I'm grateful he didn't try that door, because I don't think it was locked. The man stared hard at me for a moment, eyebrows furrowed, like deciding what he wanted to do next. But then he just backed away into the darkness, what seemed like an eternity later. I saw the truck lights back out of the driveway and then back down the road until they disappeared. I was scared out of my mind, and so was my cousin. He had only met that guy a few times, an acquaintance of his dad. It wasn't like it was a close family friend, and obviously because again he went down the wrong driveway. Visitors never go down that way. The 911 operator asked for a description of the man, then told me they had gotten in touch with my aunt and uncle and they were on their way home. She stayed on the phone with me until a police officer showed up a bit later to make sure the men were gone, and they stayed with us until my aunt and uncle got home so they could ask them some questions. My uncle was furious, not at me for calling them home earlier but at this Mr. Jim guy. He muttered something like, I'm going to blank him up. My aunt was mad at my uncle and told him to tell Jim to never come back again. I didn't know it at the time, but my uncle had a drug problem. I don't know what Mr. Jim or his accomplice were doing, or what they would have done if I wasn't on the phone with the police. But that grin 
was not a friendly one. It was sinister. And again, he also had to have known my uncle was not there. Because the basement was dark. He would have seen through the windowed basement door. He had also tried lifting the garage door. Something not even my uncle did. He intended to break into the basement. That much is clear to me. There is no other explanation. I never did babysit for them again, and I don't think I ever even went back up there, because not long after, my aunt divorced my uncle and moved out. So, Mr. Jim, the grinning, burly mountain man who tried to break into the house where I was babysitting, let's not meet again. Before I get into the story, there's a few things I need to explain about my country, South Africa. In South Africa, it's normal to have high brick walls with electric gates, electric fences, alarms, etc. The crime here is hectic. It's also pretty normal to have big gardens. My family and I are big animal lovers, so at the time we had six dogs two Sharpays, two German short-haired pointers, and two Dachshunds. With that being said, our dogs roam freely in and out of the garden, as it's obviously enclosed. We usually leave the veranda door open during the day for them to do their thing. Another thing about South Africa, it's normal to have a live-in domestic worker, a maid, and a gardener like the average family usually does employ them. It's not only for wealthy people, which seems to be a thing in other countries. So for the story, our DW is Ellie, and our gardener is Vince. So this happened in 2007 when I was nine years old. My brother, 10 years old, and I had just gotten our first cell phones that day. My dad surprised us after work. You may think it's a bit young, but it was for emergencies or to communicate with our parents. Anyway, it's an important piece of info for the story. We don't usually leave our veranda door open at night due to security reasons, but I remember it being a hot summer night that night. So of course, this night of all nights, the veranda door was wide open, and the dogs were doing their thing in the garden. My brother and I were in my parents' room setting up our new cell phones, all excited. Ellie's daughter, Anne, who's like an older sister to us, 18 years old, was helping my brother and I. My dad was somewhere in the house, and my mom was in the bath. I specifically remember Anne having a comment about how the dogs would not shut up and how annoying it was. That's when I noticed it too. Sure, they'd bark, but it was usually the dachshunds that yapped, and the bigger dogs just chilled. Plus, it would only happen for a few minutes, then they would get over it, 
Something was different that night though, as even the bigger dogs were barking nonstop. My dad appeared in his room and mentioned to us that he noticed the dog's incessant barking and he was going to check if everything was okay. No alarm bells went off in my head and I don't believe my dad thought anything was amiss either because my brother asked to investigate with him and my dad agreed. I was obviously too engrossed in my new Sony Ericsson. My dad ventured out to our garden with my brother in tow. When my dad had noticed the dogs were all grouped, growling and going nuts at a dark corner behind our, in the ground, swimming pool. The best way I can describe it is our garden beyond our pool hits like a slight decline. We have a few steps leading down the hill to the bottom end of our garden. We usually have a lamp that lights up, but my dad noticed that the lamp seemed to be off, which confused him because he could have sworn it worked the other night. Either way, my dad said he got this gut-wrenching feeling because of this and because of how out of character the dogs were acting. He called after them. They would usually come running, but tonight they seemed to just look at him and then turn back around, continuing to go crazy at the dark corner down the steps. My dad told my brother to go back inside the house and get a torch, sort of using it as an excuse for my brother not to come with him because of this off feeling. When my brother went back inside, my dad slowly approached the steps. He noticed how the dog seemed to be snapping at whatever it was, hiding just out of view in the darkness. As he got to the steps, he noticed the lamp was smashed. Confused, he inched to the steps, and as he put two and two together, it was too late. My dad, being an ex-veteran and an avid hunter, felt something cold against his temple, and immediately knew that it was a gun. Out of the darkness stepped four other men in balaclavas, all armed. Shocked, he stood frozen on the steps. The man holding the gun to his head was instantly aggressive and asked him where my brother was. That he saw my dad come out with my brother, but my brother went back in the house. Why? My dad said something came over him and before he knew what he was saying, he responded with, he went inside to press the panic button. As he said it, he saw how all of these guys started to panic. They started speaking in an African language called Zulu, assuming my dad could not understand. It's not common for white people in Africa to speak it. But my dad had actually grown up on a farm where he learned it fluently because of the workers. The aggressive guy holding the gun said in Zulu, The cops will be here any minute. Let's just kill this guy, grab what we can get, and go. The others seemed apprehensive, and a smaller guy seemed really on edge and continued to say how he cannot go back to jail again, and they need to get the heck out of there before the cops show, which would be any minute. He was still panicking. My dad then fed on this guy's fear. My dad then interrupted them speaking English, pretending not to understand what they're saying, 
and said that we usually have armed response vehicles that drove in our area. And since my brother pushed the panic button so long ago, they'll probably be here any second. And that did it. My dad watched as their plan unraveled before them. The smaller, scared guys started freaking out all of the other guys, saying that they needed to leave ASAP, or else they would be caught. He seemed to make the others more nervous and lose confidence until they started full-on bickering amongst themselves, their plan slowly turning to crap, as the third guy had put it. The aggressive one pointing the gun to my dad's head slowly lowered it as they started fighting, losing focus on my dad and shifting focus to his crew. My dad then used this as an opportunity to slowly back up the steps and turn to dart to the house. As luck would have it, as my dad ran to the veranda door, my oblivious brother was heading out with a torch. My dad scooped him up under his arm mid-run and sprinted in the house, not even closing the door behind him. Silly, I know, but I think he just wanted to get my brother inside as quick as possible without even thinking. Anne and I were obviously also oblivious to everything. When my dad rushed through the bedroom door, slammed it shut, and told us to go upstairs into the attic. There's five guys outside with guns. They're here to hurt us. Get upstairs now. My heart sank. I remember my body automatically responding and me sprinting to the stairs with Anne right behind. My mom ran out of the bathroom in a towel not too far behind. We sat there in the darkness in silence. I swear you could hear a pin drop. I think we were all just waiting to hear something below us in the rooms. My mom cursed saying she didn't have a phone, and neither did my dad. But ha, in my hand was a brand new Sony Ericsson. No better emergency to use it than now, right? My mom dials the police and I kid you not, they asked where we lived. We explained and they told us it was not their jurisdiction. Sorry. Click. The line goes dead. We're now not only crapping ourselves, but we're flabbergasted too. My mom starts cursing like a sailor again and that's when my dad realizes, crap, I didn't close the veranda door. And what about Ellie and Vince who are in their rooms, blissfully unaware of the danger they're in? He gets his firearm from the safe in the attic and tells us that whatever we hear, not to come downstairs, to stay hidden no matter what. Now I'm sobbing, begging my dad not to leave us, but he tells us he has to go get Ellie and Vince before something bad happens to them. Now there's even more tears as reality hits that there's two other people still in danger. Anne understandably is in hysterics because she's also fearing for her mom downstairs. My dad disappears and the air is thick with tension. We can still hear the dogs going crazy, indicating that those men were still on our property. My mom then calls another number, the armed security that drives around the area, and they say they'll be over in about 10 to 15 minutes. They say to wait and stay hidden until they ring our doorbell at the gate. We all wait in silence, 
fearing that we'll hear gunshot or anything indicating these men are in our house. But there was just silence. The only sound was the dog's barks outside. After what seemed like hours, but most likely a couple of minutes, we started hearing stomping coming from the stairs and my heart rate quickened. I remember shutting my eyes and praying that it was my dad with Ellie and Vince. Luckily, it was. We all hid for a while. No one dared to speak. The dogs seemed to have calmed down considerably, but were still barking every now and then. The gate intercom rang and my dad told us to wait while he checked if it was the security company, and sure enough it was. He opened up and the nightmare was over. I remember standing up, and my knees buckling from the adrenaline my body endured. The armed security somehow notified the right police, and everyone investigated the garden. They found that there were actually seven pairs of footprints, and that these guys bent the spikes on our wall and just climbed over. We got an electric fence shortly after. So there must have been two other guys hiding in the shadows that my dad had not seen, which is actually creepy in its own right. South Africa's violent crime is quite bad, and it's sickeningly common for torture and rape to happen during home invasions. I was obviously so young at the time I didn't know the horrors of the world, and was just scared of my family getting hurt. Now that I'm older, just the thought of four women being in the house and my mom being in nothing but a towel gives me the chills to this day. The cops said that the fact that there were so many guys, instead of like one to three, indicates that these guys possibly had sinister intentions. Thank goodness nothing happened to my family, and I'm forever thankful for my dad's quick thinking regarding the panic button. Also, I'm so glad that my dad understands Zulu and could manipulate the situation to benefit us. Lastly, my family will forever be in debt to our good boys and girls that warned us that night. A terrifying and life-changing outcome would have 100% happened that night had it not been for our incredible doggos. From that day onward, my dad always gave them leftover rice or meat with dinner. R.I.P. Impy, Shudo, Dash, Fudge, Winkles, and Pikachu. I'm sure there was a special place in heaven reserved for you angels. dogs go to heaven. That, I'm sure of. Thanks so much to our contributors for sharing their stories with us tonight. And thanks again to our patrons for keeping this podcast going. If you'd like to contribute and help us continue to make more episodes, feel free to check out patreon.com slash nightmare society. Be sure to share us with your like-minded family and friends. And until next time. Sweet dreams.